This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin and my guest on the show today is Malin Baker. Malin is a writer, a speaker and a strategic advisor on corporate social responsibility and responsible marketing. Uh, He's also a blogger and a podcaster who produces the Respectful Business podcast, the uh, respectful business blog and more recently the delicious and sustainable blog as well um, he's a former politician so he's got experience of political parties and public bodies as well as the corporate world more recently and is and and trying to uh, affect change in both those areas um, he's attending a conference today and he's left it in the rain to travel across and sit down and speak with me for a while which I'm really very grateful for so Malin welcome to doing good through food thank you and thanks for the invitation no, it's, it's really, it's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you again for coming out. Um, just on that conference, I was thinking you are a, um, it's a sustainability conference, the Sustainability Leaders Conference, I think it is. And yes. um, I was just wondering what, when you go, you go to some of, you know, a few of these sorts of things, I was just wondering when you go to them, what are you most hoping to get from an event like that? What are you most hoping to kind of come away with? Well, look, I think conferences like that spend, they fulfill two functions. One of them is that you will always get a throughput of people coming into new positions to do with businesses and sustainability. And there has to be a proving ground where they learn the ropes, where they get a sense of what the difficulty issues are, what are the things that the leading businesses are doing to address them, what they can learn from, so that they can sort of bring their way in. And you'll see that there's a lot of the people who've been around for as long as I have who you don't see very often at those conferences anymore, but they send their team. They send all of the new up-and-coming people. Mm. But then there's the other aspect, which is where you know, there'll be certain conferences, and, and arguably the, the Sustainable Leaders Conference is certainly aiming to be one of those, where you're looking for things that are genuinely new, what's changing, mm. what have we learned this year that is different, what in the environment in the broadest sense, the context has changed that therefore means that we have to adapt the way that we're working. So, for instance, uh, today we've been talking about what sort of role the UN Sustainable Development Goals are having. Mm. Now, the answer is, in this country, not very much. You know, if you talk to the people in the streets about the the SDGs, as they're known, then very few people have heard of them. They won't have any sense of how they apply to their life. Mm, quite but I do travel quite a bit. So mm. I was in Lebanon recently, uh, and I've been working with a Canadian client who does a lot of work in Africa with businesses on social responsibility. And in those environments, the SDGs are absolutely driving business interest and engagement. So there's a real sense of... If what we're trying to get is businesses to engage with what does it mean to be part of a sustainable environment and part of a sustainable economy mm. in countries where perhaps that discussion is, is, shall we say, relatively new, the SDGs where you know, so many people came together and worked out, okay, in order to be sustainable globally, mm. these are the priorities. And even if there's quite a few of them because there are 17 nevertheless, you know, these are the things that we can identify we need to make progress on. That has been an immensely useful tool mm-hmm. for businesses that are trying to find their way. And, of course, even in this country where you've got businesses that have been doing this for decades and think they know it all, mm-hmm. ultimately, if they're doing a good job, then you can map what they're doing against the SDGs. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can't, then you've got to ask some questions about, you know, are they as good as they think they are? Yeah, sure. And so when, and then when you, in a forum like the conference, you sort of, it, it's, a chance to check against those sorts of things and see see sort of where the where people are performing against that. So, Ideally, it is, and yeah. ultimately, whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can always find out something new from somebody, and usually from everybody. You know, if you mm. speak to people and you ask them the right questions, there'll always be some insight. From my point of view, my my real interest, my real passion is how we mainstream themes around sustainability so that they become an embedded part of how we as a culture, as a society, live our lives. It's difficult enough to work out how you embed it within corporate culture, Mm. where businesses can understand that there's a business case for running their business in a more sustainable way. That's difficult enough because there's all sorts of barriers and there's perverse incentives Mm. and there's people who just really are are so focused on their day-to-day that they don't see the bigger picture. But to get that wider to a wider society where we're so distracted by the latest thing that's on our phone, we're so distracted by the fears and hopes we've got for our own mm-hmm. families or for our own societies, 
that for me is is the ultimate challenge because until we do that, then there's just no vision of sustainability that's actually going to hold. Mm. Now, I personally believe that businesses are one of the vehicles for that because they're probably about the most pragmatic of our human mm. organisations. Um, and I also think that food is the starting point because there are so many things that divide <clears> us <throat> now politically uh, in, and uh, culturally in society that if you look to, well, where are the things we have in common? Where's our common meeting point? One of them is about you know, the food culture that we have and that we share mm. and that we all enjoy. And, of course, sustainability, one of the canaries in the coal mine is food production. The companies mm. that have been showing most leadership on climate change, even in spite of political movement in the opposite direction in certain places. A lot of them have been companies who can look at their supply chain and see today, not tomorrow, not projected into the future, mm. the impact that climate change is having on the quality of the, the produce that they depend on. Mm. So those companies are well-placed to lead and those issues are well-placed to be the sort of ones that we use to engage a wider body of people on why this thing called sustainability, if we have to call it that at all, mm-hmm. why it's important to them and their own. It's, um, it's really interesting you use the word pragmatic. When I was doing, uh, doing my research for this, you know, for this interview to sit down, I was, uh, it's, actually, it's actually in my, in my notes here, it's a heading. It's uh, pragmatism. It sort of seemed to come through... A lot of the the things that you sort of write about and possibly the decisions that you've made as well. So I wanted to, one of the questions was going to be if if that's right, that I kind of got that sense from you and clearly clearly it seems to be. Yes. Um, You know, sort of being pragmatic in tackling these issues is is, critical really, is a sort of, is it to get engagement and to, um, to actually make as big an impact on these things as possible. You have to... Have yes. to take a pragmatic approach. Well, I think that pragmatism is really one of the prerequisites for our success in this area. In mm. that, when we as societies or groups within societies, when we become ideological about whatever position it is, and and all of us are going to do it from time to time because mm. we're values driven people, and that's what defines us. And in many ways, that's a good thing. But when we become ideological about what we believe then we tend to shape the facts to fit our beliefs, not the other way around. Mm. And you only have to look at the fact that in the US at the moment, whether you believe in the science of climate change comes down to which political party you support to understand how that process works. Because the science is the science. Mm. And we might be interpreting the science right, we might be interpreting it wrong, but there is no way that belief in that can split along party lines. Mm. You know, unless you accept that really what's driving belief isn't to do with the interpretation of facts and data. It's to do with value systems. It's to do with sense of group identity. It's to do mm. with all sorts of things. And I don't judge in that. Uh, I see it as a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And, and the danger is because there's ideology on both sides. You know, I'm, I'm writing about sustainable business. I'm promoting sustainable lifestyles and business and sustainable food um, first and foremost for the future. A lot of the people who go, yeah, right on with that, are just as ideological. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the danger is that we all start to then build our own mythologies and we start to then disregard the inconvenient facts, mm. which we know we do. I mean, we know enough about the psychology of human beings that we tend to see the things that confirm our biases and to just with all the best possible will in the world, not see the things that actually contradict our biases. Mm. So I'm not here to say, oh, yeah, well, of course, the other side is wrong and therefore you know, we've got to find ways to defeat them or to bring them on. It is we have a system problem. Mm. You know, we as a species will be in denial half the time. But ultimately, the science is the science. So if the environment is changing and cocoa production is going to be devastated or coffee production is going to be devastated or whatever crop it is that maybe you know, a certain group of us is dependent on you know, the, the oceans and the sustainability of the oceans and how many people depend on that for their protein. These are problems that we need to solve because science doesn't give a damn about our ideology. Mm. So we will have some things right, we will have some things wrong, there'll be some sacred cows that we build up that then get challenged. And I think a scientific mindset 
which is that you always are excited when somebody comes up with a new challenge to what you currently believe to be true, mm. because it gives an opportunity to test those beliefs and see, is it really true or not? And, and if not, then, well, that's really exciting because that means we can move on to the thing that is closer to the truth. Mm. It's really hard to get into that mindset, but for people who are campaigning for change, for people who are going to be the levers for change in building a sustainable society, have to work hard enough to say, how does change really happen? What is the science really, really, truly telling us? And given that people are the way they are, not the way we'd like them to be, how do we order ourselves uh, in a way that's going to be equitable, that's going to be fair, and that's going to be sustainable in the future, mm. bearing in mind that there's going to be all this tribal stuff going on in the meantime, very easy to get distracted with some mm. of that stuff. So Donald Trump has obviously been you know, the big distraction for a lot of people, and there's vast numbers of people protesting on the streets. And you absolutely understand why I look towards the business community as the pragmatists, because ultimately they are the ones that are trusted on both sides of the political divide. Mm. They should be the quiet voices in the ear of the moderate Republican base in the US saying, come on, you know, we know that climate change is making itself felt in our supply chain. You know, we, we know that these things are going to have to be dealt with, don't we? Mm. And at the time, you know, when the time is right, that that sort of moderate consensus around what we need to do can be rebuilt because it used to be there mm. the um the the article that sort of <clears throat> that most made me think of this pragmatic approach it was uh, it was called uh, four reasons you should never hate a company if you want to change the world yes and and i thought that was um i, I just i really liked it i really kind of i, I read that in that one very closely and um and i thought it was particularly might be particularly sort of interesting for this audience as well, and I'll, I'll share it, you know, share yes. the link um, sort of with the, with this episode. But um, I thought maybe we could, we could sort of delve into it a little bit. Sure. The, um, because so the, I mean, food businesses certainly attract that kind of attention. You know, you reference the kind of Monsantos of the world and Nestle, who are you know who get that at a very high level. But I mean, there's also you could think you know Starbucks and McDonald's yeah. and all those yeah. sorts of people yeah. with big supply chains and a big footprint attract that kind of um, that kind of that kind of attention, you know, where they're sort yes. of almost not, not misrepresented, but kind of characterized as something sort of evil and just other and bad, you know, ultimately, yes. you know, totally bad. Um, so you and, and I think I think the thing is that this this show is sort of attracting an audience that has quite, a, you know, they, they have a lot of um, have a sense of mission about whatever sort of area it is they're looking at. It's exactly the things that you were just saying. You know, they are sort of there's quite a bit of zeal that goes with that because when you look at these problems and they're they're huge and they're pressing and they're important, then it's sort of you know the the instinct is to sort of see somebody who's doing something against that and to sort of think that you know just try and shut it down. Perhaps yes. you know yes. that, that's maybe the sort of the mindset. So, but the article was all about how. Um, not to put words in your mouth, but you know, it was all about the fact that 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 instinct is not productive, you know, harmful if yes. anything. It's, yes. it's certainly not not an efficient sort of not a useful reaction. Um, I was wondering maybe we could could talk a little bit about why. And yes, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's it's one of the most powerful things because us versus them mm. is one of the prime motivating rallying cries in human history throughout time. Yeah. Us versus them used to be fought out on the battlefield. Pick a side and... Now yeah. it gets fought out in various other sorts mm. of battlefields. But us versus them is one of the most powerful rallying cries. And it's always comforting to believe that Company X is evil. And if only we can defeat Company X, then we've solved the problem. Mm. The challenge is, of course, that you know I, I've tended to go towards the, the Gandhian line on this, where you know Gandhi campaigned to get the British out of India, but he didn't rally the troops to to kill the British, he said, look, we have a common problem. And when we can achieve a common solution, you know, we will we will persuade the British it's in their own interest to leave India. Mm. And, and ultimately, of course, that's exactly what they achieved. Now, when it comes down to these pariah companies, the ones that, that become demonised, the thing is to recognise immediately a couple of things. One is that companies are not 
individual people. You know, if I commit murder today and in 20 years' time, maybe I've repented, maybe I've changed, but I am still the same person who did that act. Mm -hmm. So society, is it's fair enough to say, well, maybe we still think you should be in prison atoning for what you did. And, of course, businesses are held accountable for what they do, and there, there are legal sanctions against what they do. But equally, they change over time. The leadership changes, the, the personnel involved with a business can change radically. And because they are pragmatic entities, they can completely change their purpose. They can completely evolve as they have had to do day in, day out, because things in the marketplace will change very quickly. Companies will abandon old products, abandon old business models and become totally different companies because they have to, because if they don't, their competitors will take over. Mm. So if, if you're going to demonize a company, the question really is, what is it you're trying to achieve? And is it achieved really by defeating a company, which is a temporary collection of people? Or is it about achieving a behavior change in the marketplace? And what's the way that's most likely to make that progress? Mm. You know, if I'm driving from A to B, and somebody cuts me up on the road, it's very easy and it's the most natural thing in the world to suddenly see that person as being a complete idiot. And, you know, I've had mm. friends who drive up close to that person to try and, you know, punish them in some way and get in their head or all of these kinds of things. And I just say, well, what's the objective here? You know, my objective when I go driving somewhere is I want to arrive where I'm going safely and in a good frame of mind. And the mm. question is, does picking a fight with this guy who was maybe in a hurry, maybe, you know, uh, maybe uh, his wife is about to give birth. Oh, I don't know what's going on in, in, inside that car. Mm. At the end of the day, what I'm doing is I'm managing my environment to be safe and for me to get where I'm going, you know, as easily and, and safely as possible. Picking a fight with someone on the road doesn't actually achieve my objective. Even though the, the us versus them, when it happens, it's like, oh, they it's, did that it's to almost me visceral. You immediately yeah. want to do it. Mm. And I think it's the same way with, with these things. We love to have enemies to fight. But ultimately, sustainability is either going to be a common solution for all of us always going to be no solution at all. And, and of course, the challenge is that what we tend to, when we're talking about sustainability in food and sustainability in certain other areas, is we tend to go towards the absolute. You know, if only mm. everyone could become vegan, then it would be sustainable. If only everyone was eating organic food, then it would become sustainable. These are our sort of, you know, our own ideological constructs then that, you know, maybe they're factually uh, right or not, but we start to, to get behind them. But equally, the, Ultimately, you're going to drive sustainability to scale when you've got corporations lining up to embed this into their own objectives. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, if it comes down to small family farms and small niche enterprises, it's not going to service the needs of 9 billion people, which is mm -hmm. what we're idly speculating the world's going to be bearing the weight of at some point soon. So, you know, it has to be mainstream. Well, how do you get this mainstream? You get it by making allies out of the companies that service the mainstream and many of them have got open doors mm -hmm. you know as you've had with uh, one or two of your other interviews before like with Giles at the um, Restaurant Association um, you know, a lot of these companies are on the journey because they know that they have to be you know, people running these companies have got kids they, mm -hmm. they don't go to work thinking how can I despoil the planet today in order to achieve a short term profit mm -hmm. you know, it would be bizarre if that was what was going through most of their minds do you, do you think that um, so the you know the company <clears throat> companies will change over time, but obviously they 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 have a culture within that, and you know people are sort of promoted yes through within a you know people move through a system. There's sort of people promoting their image sometimes, and you know that that sort of thing. So it'll, things can change over time, but perhaps slowly. Do you, is the other part of that the sort of public opinion? Is it about changing? You know, if if sustainability becomes uh, you know, necessary from a customer perspective. Customers won't look at you if you have poor practices. Is that when it happens? Is is that when the sort of, is that when the objectives become aligned with, um, you know, your ideological objectives become aligned with company objectives? I think there's an influence there, but people oversell it. Mm. I don't believe that we achieve sustainability because the ethical consumer is going to drive it because mm -hmm. by and large our experience of the ethical consumer niche is that it remains a niche. And although you will get some surveys where you'll get 
majorities of people who claim that they would rather buy from one sort of company for another, most marketers who do careful market research will be able to tell you that doesn't actually shape their behavior Mm. in the marketplace. However, we are in a position where we are seeing a change. We are seeing the millennial generation has got a different mood music. And that won't stick because generations mature and their incentives change and their perspective changes. My generation was told it was going to save the planet when I was in my 20s. And arguably that didn't work out especially tremendously well. Still working on it. I'm still working on it. Quite a few people are still working on it. But as a generational thing of, oh, it's inevitable because once your lot are in charge, you you all care about this. It's not such an automatic process because Mm -hmm. generations do change and and incentives uh, lead that change. However, we are with the most connected generation ever. We have Mm. technology that means that information is instantly available. We have all sorts of things that have changed the collective consciousness in a way that really hadn't been seen before. And I think businesses have started to notice. And so there is more keen awareness Mm. of these issues from how it will play out in the public domain. But I also think that a lot of it comes down to simply the science of it. Because businesses are pragmatic Mm -hmm. and because the chief executives of businesses and the people who advise them are often looking to see where are our main risks, our financial risks and our non-financial risks. And this has been on the radar over the last 20 years uh, as being amongst the things that are growing in importance for them. Mm -hmm. So you would get people like Stuart Rose, the former chief executive of Marks & Spencer, who had a private session with Al Gore, went through the science with him and went and took his board to see the film and then sat down and said, right, we have to do something about this. That wasn't customer-driven. Um, it was customer-driven in, in only one sense, which is that if you're in that position, you say, the science is driving us this way, how do we take our customers with us? Nice. Because you can go one step ahead of a customer, maybe two steps ahead of a customer if you're smart, but if you go three steps ahead, you lose them. And we've seen that a number of times, going right back over the last 20 years. Do, they, do they just see that you, do they sort of think that you're preaching or they just they just don't get it? You can, it, it depends on what your customer demographic mm. is, but you can completely lose them. So let me give you an example from quite some time ago, actually. Um, Iceland, uh, the frozen food retailer, they... Back in 2004, 2005, we were all dreadfully concerned about the rise of GM foods. Ironically, still an issue, particularly in uh, several parts of the world. But in Europe, it was a a real emergent issue. And Iceland was the first food retailer that said, "Okay, none of the food that we cover is going to be GM modified. And that got them really positive reaction from from customers across. Because even if they didn't really understand the science, it kind of sounded scary and the campaigns have kind of done a good job talking about Frankenfood, scaring people in a very non-specific kind of a way. And ultimately, one of the reasons why food is a great starting place when we're talking about sustainability is because it's so personal, because you're putting it inside your body. So when somebody says there's something wrong with it, you're going to pay attention to it. Six months later, having sort of done that and really gotten some benefits in the marketplace, they then made an announcement that they were going to go all organic. And they put some caveats on there. They said, we're going to go all organic. It won't cost any more. You know, the prices will stay the same. So you would think that there could be no downside to that. But for their particular customer demographic, it played out disastrously for them. There was a huge backlash against it. The customers who you know, generally were sort of low cost food buyers didn't get why organic was a thing, didn't believe them that it wasn't going to cost any more. Right. And they just weren't going to have it. The chairman was out within six months and it was just, a, you know, it was an interesting public relations disaster for them. Mm. Now, were they more sustainable for the first thing and not for the second? You know, it was. you can argue it either way, but the point is the first one went with the grain of where their customers were already, or at least there was an emerging concern. Yeah. The second one arguably was just a step ahead of where their own particular customer base was which may not be where another company's customer mm. base was. You know, I think it was only about three or four years after that, Sainsbury's and Marks and & Spencer were tussling over, you know, Sainsbury's went first into organics and they were the first to have a, you know, only organic bananas or something. Yeah. And Marks and & Spencer were thinking, oh, well, you know, Sainsbury's have got that 
sewn up because they were first into that area. We're going to go heavily on fair trade because they they want to compete. They want to be distinctive. Mm. So you know, within the consensus that says, okay, well, yeah, we're looking for a broad base of sustainability here. They will look for the thing they can own, they can make their own, that will play well with their customers. Mm. But they can't afford to go too far too fast. No, and it, it risks sort of dropping it on them rather than taking Absolutely. it with them. Absolutely. And this comes down to this mm. whole mission that I'm fascinated with and, and I see myself on, which is how do you mainstream sustainability? Because ultimately, these companies are saying, how do we take our customers with us? We can look at the science. Mm. We know where it needs to go. We know that we want to be profitable long term. And you can't reliably create long term financial value in a failing environment in a a failing society mm. you know you want a healthy environment healthy society those are the contexts that support long-term wealth creation now, a lot of businesses can understand that as a broad equation but how the heck do does that mean you organize yourself in the short term mm. what product changes do you dare make in the short term how brave do you dare to be you know if you're brave will you become a first mover and get the benefit or will you go too far and get get mm. punishment and people completely underestimate how high stake a, a question that is for, for these big corporations that you know, millions of, of pounds of turnover employing mm-hmm. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And large numbers of those people can lose their jobs if you get that equation wrong. You know, it's, it's, it's not an easy job to solve. And people always think that these things are easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is intuitively, obviously, right and easy and, and factually incorrect. You um, you said before about, you know, sort of engaging with these companies on these issues. A lot of them are open, you know, they're, they're sort of open in, open in a, well, I'm, I'm not sure sort of exactly, is, how are they open? And so if somebody's listening and there's a particular, if they are thinking, okay, you know, I, I, don't like the way this company does this on, you know, my issue, my area that I care passionate, passionately about. How should they engage with a company to try and sort of move the argument? So it's difficult to generalise because you're always talking about different sorts of sensitivity and pressures depending on the nature of business, the nature of its marketplace. Is it business to consumer? Is it business to business? Yeah. However, we've seen over the last 20 years an interesting track record of campaign groups who, after all, when I first started, I started in the campaign movement rather a long time ago. And in those days, campaign movements lobbied government for legislation. And that was predominantly what they did because that was how you thought you would get change. And when they discovered that actually lobbying businesses to directly change behavior got results way quicker because so long as your case was good, and that's a caveat because sometimes we get convinced of things, but the science doesn't back them up. But so long as your case is good, then actually businesses, A, are, are able to move quicker than most governments are able mm. to. And B, you know, they've got very immediate operations. They've got very immediate supply chain. They can very quickly look and see what the facts are and come up with solutions mm. because they're used to coming up with solutions to problems. Problem solving is one of the things businesses do well at, uh, uh, and that's one of the, the things that makes them so endurable and, and so successful as a human institution. So you've seen this happen in certain issues. Some of the uh, animal welfare groups, for instance, have gotten incredibly quick, I mean, you could almost say capitulation, but let's just say modification from businesses when it comes to, you know, should they use a certain supplier that uses certain types of practices mm-hmm. uh, that, that are considered to be a bad practice in terms of animal welfare. Mm-hmm. And you've seen companies like, you know, KFC and uh, the burger companies like McDonald's. Often, as soon as a campaign has started, within weeks, they've, they've changed. And they said, yeah, we're going to do that. And they move on to the next company. And you think, okay, well, it does show that as long as you do your homework, as long as the issue is right, as long as you have enough support in the general population that you're going to be able to move a needle on this, Mm. then you can have an impact. But, of course, you have to have those things. You know, you can be vegan, uh, for instance, and say, okay, we're going to campaign to turn McDonald's vegan. Mm. And, you know, just don't waste your breath because ultimately there is a huge base of consumers for that particular company that is based on that traditional product. Mm. It's, it's an ask that is just never going to fly with that marketplace. It's an ask too far. 
And uh, so it has to be achievable. It has to be doable within the company's own sphere. And, and, and arguably, if it isn't, then you've got to ask yourself, well, is it an effective ask anyway? You know, this is the difference between the ideological mm. ask and, and the pragmatic ask says, well, if we can have 9 billion people on the world, how do we organise ourselves? That means that those 9 billion people can be fed sustainably mm-hmm. um, in a way that's going to work with those societies the way they are, not the way we'd like them to be. Because if you say, oh, yeah, the only way it's going to happen is if everyone turns vegan. Well, we're, in that case, we're screwed mm. because human societies don't work like that. You know, if we were in a position where 9 billion people were all f- being vegan in order to survive, it because we failed. We failed to come up with a version of sustainability where they could have the things that they currently enjoy and take for granted and are culturally built into whichever country, whichever society you're you're talking about. Ultimately, we screwed up the environment so badly that we ended up in not plan B, not plan C, but plan D, where we're really just in, in the sackcloth and ashes world we're forced to eat in a very, very particular way because it's we're so close to the edge. It's the only way we can do it. Well, surely, you know, we want a vision of sustainability that has more light and colour and joy than that. You know, this is this is the vision that I want to go after anyway. I, I do a sustainable food blog. Half of it is about joyous food it's about you know the same thing as any other food blog is about mm. you know really fantastic food with elements of sustainability dropped in as context mm. and, and to me that food that, should that's, be about isn't it it's, well it's, uh... i think that there's it can be a niche product where if if you want to eat today as sustainability and low impact as you possibly can, that's absolutely a thing that you can do. It's a cultural thing within itself. There's mm-hmm. lots of other people who will do that. And, and it's a great place to be. There's no mm-hmm. reason why anyone wouldn't choose to live that lifestyle. It isn't currently proven that everybody in the world needs to go to that uh, sort of length in order for us to have the world that we're going to. It might well be the case. Mm-hmm. Nobody has shown it one way or the other. And ultimately, you will not get 9 billion people voluntarily choosing to do that. You, know, you look at food patterns in China and you know, particularly countries where you've had patterns of underdevelopment over the last 20, 30 years, large rural areas of poverty where there is a real engine of economic uh, activity now. Mm. Everyone is aspirational now to eat better, to to enjoy the things that they understand to be higher quality. You have to be able to build in something into that aspirational lifestyle that they have where sustainability is built in. Mm -hmm. You can't simply say, no, 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 what you're aspiring after is wrong. You should be aiming for this very low minimum standard sort of uh, uh, vision. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, obviously nobody's attracted to the idea of, of, of sackcloth and ashes. Uh, but half the time when we talk about this issue, it, it is the impression that we give. You know, mm. it's the impression, oh, no, no, we've got to give up this, we've got to give up this, we've got to give up that. You can't sell it. Companies can't sell it to consumers. Governments can't sell it to voters. Mm. And therefore, you've got to come up with the way forward that's going to work with people the way they are, not the way you'd like them to be. It's got to be saleable. Pragmatic. pragmatic. <laughs> it has to be pragmatic. Yeah, yeah. And, and even when that means identifying what the ideologies are and thinking about, well, how do we influence this? Because people are influencing on an ideological basis day in, day out. Mm. You know, we influence each other all the time. The, the pragmatic question is saying, oh, okay, people are seated in their own culture. They're seated in their own uh, emotional sort of sense of self. How do we build in a more sustainable vision of that sense of self that they will take ownership of and that they'll appreciate and it's a different exam question to the one that we think we're answering. We're, we're not answering the science exam question. The science is there. It's the underpinning context. The exam question is, how do we build a consensus across many various cultures, societies, beliefs, and divisions, political mm. divisions and cultural divisions and gender divisions and all of these things? This is either consensus or we're screwed. So that's our exam question. We're not going to get it by defeating Monsanto. We're not going to get it by uh, defeating Russia. Uh, you know, how, therefore, do we go about embedding a sustainability culture in the face of that? This is why I think businesses are key agents, because 
most of those societies and cultures have now embraced the market in some way, shape, or form, uh, including the communist countries, where there's mm-hmm. now you know, social capitalism in, in one way or another. And as pragmatic entities, therefore, you know, dictated by the marketplace, dictated by the distribution of goods and services to provide social benefits, mm. you've got a starting point for a common conversation. Has all sorts of challenges, all sorts of downsides, you know, of course, and those are the problems we have to solve. Mm. When I am um, in the introduction... I yes. described you as an ex-politician, and for those listening, you visibly winced. I was <laughs> to say. Yes. Um, I, so sorry about that. For no, 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 no. I was no, going to say, I, I think there's kind of, it seems quite clear in a lot of what you're saying, you know, that you sort of, well, you just said it in these words that, you know, business is really, is probably the, the best vehicle for this kind of change. Do you think more so than, than politics, more so than campaigning? So um, I think politics and campaigning are absolutely essential mm-hmm. and there are lots of people doing those things and we need good people doing those things. Um, the reason why I winced when you said <laughs> this, by the way, is that, um, you know, yes, I was politically involved something like 30 years ago. Yeah. Somebody took it on themselves to put up a Wikipedia page about me and that was the key focus of that page. Right. And, and A, you then feel like, well, what about all the stuff I've done in the last 30 <laughs> years, you bugger? But of course, that was someone who was on a political project and they were doing all the people who were active in that party at that particular time. However, because it's Wikipedia, whenever anyone does a search on me, it's one of the things that comes right to the top. Oh, for goodness sake. However, I I left politics um, such as it was because um, ultimately it's so tribal. And I thought we need to have good people doing this and doing it well. And there were always pragmatic politicians who would fight the tribal fight at election time, but they would understand who were the good ones in the other parties where they could make common cause Mm. and how change might be made to happen in the face of whatever political outcome there had been from whatever election it was. And for me, you always need to have people like that who, who are thinking, okay, well, how do we build a consensus around this while we're still having all the political bun fights and arguing about the implementation issues? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, what we had in this country is, has, has been pretty good in the sense that because Margaret Thatcher was the first one who acknowledged climate change because she had a scientific brain herself, and obviously she was identified as being very much extremely on the, the side of the equation that is traditionally not seen as the environmentalist side. Mm. It created a political culture in this country where consensus around certain aspects of the agenda were possible and we could just argue about the details of implementation. Mm. And even now, you know, you get uh, some of the elements in the Conservative Party where you can see that tradition has has passed on. And the other side will always deny it and they'll always say that they're lying and doing this out of the other. And that's what the tribal nature of politics does. Mm. And that's why you can't... <coughs> leave it to politics because Mm, it is so us versus them. But from my point of view, I got involved with politics in the first place because I was thinking, you know, I've been involved with campaign movements and campaign movements tend to be about saying no to something. Mm. And I thought this is all very well, but actually what do you say yes to? And my initial answer was, well, surely that's politics. You create a manifesto. Mm. I was a little naive in those days. Um, But anyway, that was what took me there. And then I thought, do you know what? Actually, yes, maybe, but the way that this works is is not really the way that I'm built. Mm. Whereas I got a job um, talking about environmental advice to small businesses in Yorkshire and small businessmen in Yorkshire take no prisoners, I can tell you, and you learn very quickly to talk about the things that they're interested in rather than just waffling on about what you think is going to save the world. Mm. But as soon as you did that and you engage what they were trying to do as businesses, the doors were wide open. And that was a real wake-up call for me. It says, oh, okay, so actually there is a space to be having this conversation where people are, you know, they're trying to create businesses, they're trying to create wealth, they're trying to be successful in their own terms, of course. Mm -hmm. But if you can do that and do some good as well, why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is really down to the mission of you and this whole podcast, you know. The people who produce food for us to eat, the restaurants that produce food and, and serve it to people, why on earth wouldn't they 
wants to do that in a way that is sustainable and life-affirming and healthy for the people that are eating the food and so on. So ultimately, if you can have discussions about, well, how do we solve the problems? Because there are some really difficult problems you have to solve. If the door's open, then push on it. Mm. And do you, um, do you think there's a sense that businesses have to sort of define, I mean, you just said sort of, you thought in politics that's what a, a manifesto was all about and maybe yes. that was naive. But do you think there's a sort of a business, the business equivalent of that is a, a perhaps a more real thing that they have to say what they are about, what they're for? They do. Um, and this is a change. Mm. I mean, there, there have been certain businesses that defined a, a solid purpose behind who they are you know, many, many, many years ago. Mm. And they were rather the exceptions rather than the rules. And, and in fact... Back in 93, I think it was, Collins and Porras wrote this seminal book that was hugely influential, although not as practiced as, as the influence which would suggest maybe it should have been, which is a book called Built to Last, mm. where they looked at you know, which had been the most enduringly successful businesses that had been number one or two in their industry for 100 years or more. Right. And what was the difference between those businesses and the very, very successful businesses that hadn't been so enduringly successful? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they identified in that was that the, the top businesses that they were studying, they had a purpose beyond profit. They had this sense of values that gave them a common purpose that wasn't just about the money that was to be made. And, and, and that's something then that has been recently, more recently, been translated into what has now become a much more talked about sense that businesses should have purpose. Mm. The challenge is that once you get to corporate levels, there is so much jargon and so much crap spoken. You can have that conversation and people can go away and they can still come back with something that's completely nonsensical and unfit to have the impact that that is meant to have. Nevertheless, you're getting more businesses now that are saying, okay, let's define ourselves around the difference we want to make in the world. And then in the course of making that difference, we will earn the right to make a profit. We will earn Mm. a right to have this market share. And so we're starting to see some inspiring examples of companies that are, are defining the profit. And the more you see defining their purpose, and the more you see companies doing that, the more others will really start to get actually what is this difference mm. that is being made. You know, we had it for 20 years that companies would talk about mission and values. But I have seen plenty of mission and value statements on the walls of chairman. And if they're only on the chairman's wall and you speak to people in the call centre and they've never heard of them, then the company de facto doesn't have values and it doesn't have a mission. You know, these things only work if they are rallying points for decisions that are being made at every single level of the business. Mm-hmm. And those businesses at the moment are still few and far between. Do you think that um, sort of social businesses are a kind of extension of that? Do you, or do you think they're sort of, an, do you think they're maybe driving that a little bit to a degree as well? The sort of things that, um, you know, don't, the ones that don't have a profit motive necessarily. They, they are, but there's a danger. Mm. And, I suppose this probably goes into what could be considered as controversial territory, but boldly we stride into these areas. <laughs> Let's do it. The danger is that by becoming too distinct and being called social businesses, that mm. you then become, you turn it into a marginal thing rather than a mainstream thing. Okay. There is certainly a, a niche that can be filled by painfully ethical businesses who are wearing their ethics on their sleeves and will attract customers, whether they're business or consumer customers, mm. who really want to do business with social enterprises and social businesses. And, and that is absolutely great. So long as we don't then start to get the sense that having a purpose about the difference you're going to make in the world becomes a thing that they do and not the mainstream corporates. Mm. It has to be a shared process. And if it's a shared process, I don't understand why we need a distinction. You know, I want Walmart and I want Marks and Spencer and I want all of these large companies, Monsanto, whoever, to have a purpose about the difference that they're going to make in the world. Mm -hmm. And that has to be something that works with Wall Street the way that it is and the FTSE the way that it is and so on, because all of us now understand the process whereby long-term wealth is created and the context that supports that, rather than having this group over here who are the ethical businesses And every now and then one of them will fail because 
some businesses see some fail and someone will point at it and say, oh, look, you see, it's all very well, but you know, it doesn't work in the marketplace. Mm. And, and that's just unfortunately negative persuasion to the target that for me is one of the key groups we need to be persuading, which is the mainstream business leaders, many of whom are on the journey but I don't want anything to sort of push them further away from that when, when actually momentum's going the right direction. It could almost sort of reinforce an us versus them for, for those people within those corporate It could. Companies. It you could. So that's, that's them over there. And, and it doesn't yeah. have to, but it could. And the mm. trouble is we are so programmed for us versus them. For mm. then suddenly you've got a bunch of people, you know, all the people who, who say that they're signed up to sustainability will say, oh, well, you should only do business with social enterprises. And mm. then suddenly you know, we've lost the battle because ultimately the prize is about mainstreaming this so that it's about everybody, not just about those of us who care enough about this to do blogs about it, to run mm. campaigns on it and, and to try and persuade other people to do things. Mm. So those... Um Sort of takes quite nicely into into those blogs and uh, and podcasts and and uh, and writings, which is, is sort of generally, I think, has been quite a big thing for you from from early on. It seems like you've, yes. you've kind of you've always written. I think just just as sort of a general question, is that something that you um, that sort of you find does it help to clarify your thinking? Is is that maybe the kind of is is it sort of a personal exercise first, and then sort of you know almost separate from the people that read it? I think it's it started that way from when I was a kid. Mm. Writing was something that I did. And when I was at school, I was a precocious little brat in a debating, house debating competition. Mm-hmm. So speaking and writing was always something that I did and yeah. teachers would encourage it and so on. And, and actually, I had the privilege because I got involved with campaign movements at an early age and I suddenly ended up on platforms with really, you know, some of the best orators in mm. the country. You know, I was at the Green Party um, back when the first Gulf War happened and, you know, the Green Party was against the, Gulf, the first Gulf War and suddenly you were on platforms with the firebrands like Tony Benn and Ken Livingstone's people. These were the people who were the best orators of their age. Whatever you thought of their politics, their yeah. skills as communicators were second to none. So it was a fascinating sort of proving ground for, for me. And I was always interested then about how do you solve these problems and turn them into mainstream consciousness. Mm. Now, for me, the frustration around the corporate social responsibility world as it started when, when yeah, as, as I was involved with it right from the earliest days was that it spoke in jargon was mm. that it got very technical very quickly. And if you go to you know most of the corporate responsibility conferences, they'll be arguing about the fine-tuning points of the global reporting initiative or the, the sustainable development goals or whatever it might be, mm. and getting very, very technical very quickly. Now, the writing that I do, I'm always trying to find how do we mainstream this? How do we turn these into the big ideas that are about very, very human Debates, very human conflicts, very mm. much about sense of self, very much about where we're collectively going. And when I think that we're on sort of the wrong path, where we're getting into these us and them debates, you know, I will challenge those. And generally people will, you know, either totally ignore that or, or sort of co-opt it and mm. say that I'm really agreeing with them or something. Right. Because we filter out the things that contradict us and we only see the things that, that support us. But nevertheless, there were a lot of people who were coming into the corporate social responsibility movement at the early stages who were good enough to talk to me and say that the writing that I did as they were coming in helped to define some of their thinking around it. Because in the early days of the movement, not many people were really engaging with the issues yeah. in that sort of a way. Now, now there's a lot more, but in those earlier days, there really wasn't. Mm. So, yeah. And, and now moving into the food sort of area, you know, if I look at the existing sustainable food movements, it is the same. It gets very, very technical very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it always gets focusing on what is the optimal outcome? You know, should we be you know, really reducing all of our inputs to the absolute minimum? Otherwise, we can't call it sustainable. Yeah. And what I'm really interested in is, well, what are people's food cultures? 
And how can we predict that over the next 10 years, we're going to be reshaping people's food cultures because of the changes we can see are, are, are really coming? So we know that reduction of food waste is going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, that for me is fascinating. And, and if you want to know the role that corporates have in this, you only have to look at this whole food waste question. Mm-hmm. You know, Tesco recently announced that they were going to eliminate all food waste from, from their many mm-hmm. stores within a, a, a fixed date. And this, for me, is exactly why mainstream corporate responsibility has a role to play. Because once those big corporations get it, a specific thing, Mm. the speed with which they can leapfrog over any ambitions you thought they might take to go to a zero ambition is just breathtaking. Walmart did it a few years ago when Hurricane Katrina woke up the chief executive of Lee Scott there to what they should be doing. And their response to Hurricane Katrina dwarfed what the federal government was able to do because Mm. what Walmart was able to do was to mobilise resources very, very quickly, much quicker than the federal government. As soon as they got it, they moved very, very quickly. And then they started saying, well, okay, we should have zero carbon in our supply chain. And they started pushing that with a speed none of us thought they Mm. would ever rise to. So Tesco can suddenly say, okay, we're going to eliminate food waste. Wow, that is huge. The real trick is how do we get the customers to eliminate food waste? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I write this food blog and I, you know, oh, here's a fantastic recipe. You know, it's delicious food. And at the end I'll say, and if you're going to do this, it uses two egg yolks. So you're going to have these two egg whites. So this is what you would do to store them. This is what you might use them for and so on. Mm-hmm. Build that into your thinking. Before you make this dish, think, okay, there's going to be this leftover. What's the next dish I'm going to use that's going to use that? And that's just a mm-hmm. mindset change. Sainsbury's are doing a study at the moment, have been doing a study, where they said, okay, yes, we can reduce our own waste. Mm-hmm. How do we influence our customers to waste less at home. And they've done a couple of pilot projects. And do you know what? They're not going to talk about this in a big, loud voice, but so far the results of that have been really, really poor. Right. Because influencing people in terms of what they do in their own home is really difficult. Mm. Now, that for me is a fascinating question. So how do you get into the mindset of people where they live, their own food culture, their own current habits? Because mm-hmm. we're creatures of habit. We're being pragmatic. We understand how hard it is to change habits. Otherwise, everyone would still be on their New Year's diet. Mm-hmm. And most of them aren't. How do we change certain habits that means that we're going to reduce less waste, going to produce less waste at home? Mm. And the corporates are trying to puzzle over it. We as a society have to puzzle over it. For me, that's one of the most interesting questions. And yes, of course, I want to know the most sustainable lifestyles. And of course, I will dip into that and enjoy those. But if I do that too much, then it cuts you off from that mainstream. And suddenly you're over there saying, Mm. come over here, rather than being part of the mainstream and saying, how do we just take that one extra step? And and for Mm. me, that's the most fascinating thing. What do you hope to to do with the podcast the, the delicious and sustainable is, is a, a pretty new new venture yes. for you rel- relative to your other podcasts yes. and your sort of CSR stuff um, what would what do you hope to do with it what would the ideal sort of outcomes of it be it's a good question I think it's an evolving picture mm. so certainly I'm feeling my way into things with the with the blog and what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the space in terms of amplifying that mainstream conversation. Mm-hmm. Because at the moment, what I see is I see the, you know, the campaign end where people are doing some good things and, and certainly a, a lever for change, but often grasping for easy solutions. Mm-hmm. And quite often those are not the right solutions. You know, and I'm looking for how do you engage the real levers for change on the more nuanced picture? You know, I'll give you an example. At the moment, we're, we're worried about plastic waste and you know, the, the plastic that's ending up in oceans has become this amazing driver of change. And, mm. and that's all to the good and it needs to change. But then you just get people who you know, are tweeting at Sainsbury saying, oh, I went into your store and here's some broccoli and some plastic wrapping and just take it all out of plastic wrapping, Sainsbury's, mm. you know. And that's all very well, but 
What we also know is that cucumbers and broccoli and whatever, when they're in plastic, they stay fresh for two, three times longer. And so on the one hand, we've got this food waste imperative. It says, well, we don't want to be throwing out all these food. And so we want to find ways of keeping it fresh for longer. And mm. the second way, we don't want to be putting all this plastic anywhere near the oceans and, and we don't want to be producing as much of it. So the answer to that problem is all about, well, how do we innovate our way through these? How do we keep food fresher with a smaller environmental outcome? And then how do we iterate that to get even better? And how do we iterate it to make sure that it's acceptable to consumers who won't accept everything? Mm -hmm. Cadbury, a few years ago, listened to people saying, we don't want all this packaging on Easter eggs. Cadbury, sort it out. And this was back in the days when Cadbury was Cadbury rather than, you know, an unfortunate adjunct of a, a foreign corporation. And they trialed out Easter eggs without the packaging that they had mm. and wasn't very successful because the customers weren't receptive to it. Mm. You know, on the one hand, people would look at the packaging and say, this is a disgrace. But on the other hand, the immediate, obvious and intuitively right answer wasn't acceptable to the customer. And so you've got to come up with a ways that tick all of those boxes that are not going to produce the waste, that is going to produce food that lasts longer, that's going to be acceptable to the customer. And that gives you a very, you know, much smaller range of options to play with and forces you to be much more innovative and open than perhaps we're used to being. I'm fascinated with that discussion. I want to challenge the campaign thing that says, oh yeah, easy answers are where to go whilst embracing the areas where, no, 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 there is a demonstrable right answer and mm. someone just needs to sort of shout about it. I want to, yes, be there, uh, one of the, the, the voices pushing companies to make the most of their leadership opportunity because there is a political vacuum and, and that calls for leadership. Mm. And a number of the business leaders understand that there needs to be leadership, but a lot of them don't want to have their head above the parapet. So, you know, I want to be one of the voices that are encouraging them to go that bit further. I just think that there is a space for a a grown-up discussion that is based on the science of where we need to go to, that is aware of the cultural changes that need to happen in order to get there and take a problem-solving approach to working out how do we take the next step and the step after that. Well, I, I think that sounds fascinating. I, I will, I will be listening. I'll be, uh, yeah, tuning in. So I'll, I'll put that in. I'll put the link in the in this show as well. So it's delicious and sustainable for anybody you. who's listening. Um, I thought that there are, you know, as you you've, you've listened to the show, there are general questions that I sort of ask towards yes. the end of an interview, and I, I thought of, uh, I'll ask you a couple of those as well. Um, I thought I'd ask you in the the context of food in the UK, if I say success to you, who do you think of and why? Oh, well, it's, it, it's one of those questions, that the context for which is so broad mm. um, that I need to narrow it down. A Do you bit narrow more. it down however, however, because, however it comes to mind? So, so there's, there's a couple of things for, mm. for me. Raymond Blanc, who uh, has loomed large over one or two of your earlier episodes uh, mm. because obviously he's the president of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, yeah. um, which, yeah, I'm really chuffed that that has turned out to be something that he is championing as well. Mm. I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s. I grew up on Cadbury Smash. I yeah. grew up on, you know, Spam in the, the horrible meat version, not the email version. Yeah. I grew up on what we thought was going to be the food of the future that was just an abomination against every sort of sense of taste and, yes. and decency, frankly. And Raymond Blanc was one of the, the, the earliest people who came into the UK when that was the standard. That was where we were. That was mm. kind of our food culture. And of course, he wasn't the only one, but he was certainly one of the highest profile ones of focusing on that and changing that and turning us into mm. a country that identified what good quality food should be and what it should look like. And we forget now how unusual that was then. Mm. We just think now, oh, yeah, you go out to eat and you will get all this amazing, fantastic food. And, you know, we are quite a foodie nation now. Well, that wasn't the case no. 20, 30 years ago. And I was inspired by him 30 years ago. I was a vegetarian 30 years ago. I bought his his uh, one of his books uh, for cooking at home. I couldn't eat most of what was in it. Mm. But I was inspired by it anyway because it was this vision of, you know, what quality food could be and the provenance of food and being close mm. to where it was produced. 
that just absolutely inspired me. And that laid down the seed that sort of now really turned into what I'm doing now. So there's success in that sort of sense. He changed attitudes and he's now campaigning for more sustainability. Mm-hmm. So he's still changing attitudes in this, in this uh, fantastic way. For me, that's success. On the other side, I guess when you're looking at, you know, on a much more mainstream sort of corporate area, I would look at uh, a, co- a company, a corporation, someone like Unilever. Mm. Now, Unilever is only partially in the sort of food space. It does so many different products. But on one of the areas that it does focus on, for instance, uh, palm oil, which is one of those sort of big issues about sustainability. Yeah. And one of those big issues where, once again, you know, no clear, easy answers, because on the one hand, Palm oil is a vegetable source of oil, but it's arguably more sustainable than any other because it is a more efficient producer of you know, the quantity of oil per plant. Mm-hmm. But of course, the way that it's produced, it's often done through uh, deforestation and so on. And so the, the way it's being done is not sustainable and therefore it has become controversial. Unilever as a mainstream, huge corporation has many, many products with a chief executive, Paul Polman, who joined a company and carried on its tradition of caring about these sorts of things and and amplified it in many ways, was prepared to say to shareholders, if you don't care about long-term, then go and invest in someone else, Mm. which is not the sort of thing that chief executives generally do. They have led the charge in many of those sustainability issues from a position where it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. They were pioneers in the palm oil space. They were very unfairly targeted by Greenpeace, in fact, um, when they were amongst the leading companies. And I had this conversation with Greenpeace at the time, and they said, well, you know, it's, it's one of the highest profile targets and it gets more uh, publicity it's than kind of calls. A scalp for I was just thinking, yeah, but what you're doing is, <coughs> what you're doing is you're punishing companies in the lead. What mm. kind of incentive does that give the rest to follow? So sometimes campaign groups, you know, do annoy me because of how they choose targets and whether or not they are actually best suited to encourage the change that we want to see in the world or not. Mm-hmm. That's to one side. Um, Unilever have done a fantastic job. Paul Polman has taken a certain amount of heat from some of the mainstream commentators for being quite as committed to the sustainability journey. They have been pioneers and leaders, including in the food space where, yeah. where those businesses are relevant. Um, so, yeah, it's a hard thing to do. And, and I see that as being a success. I thought I'll ask you one more, one more question um, from the sort of the general, the general ones, which yes. is, um, I think if you, if you could pick up the phone and talk to your 20 year old self, Ah. What would you say to him? Oh, crikey. Um, okay, there's a version that I'm willing to talk about on this podcast, and there's a version I'm not. <laughs> we could discuss um, later. So if I was, if I was, so in the vein of what we've been speaking about, because mm. when I was 20, to, to give some context, I was definitely and rather pompously and self-righteously on a mission to save the world, and some would say maybe nothing's changed, but nevertheless... Yeah, I was very much involved with the sort of campaigns at that time. And I was open to the idea that it was about building common solutions because I was into Gandhi even at that early age. So I had some of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think probably what I would have said to that person would have been to uh, look towards collective action, look towards the institutions of change and really be clear about the change that you want to see in the world and accept that, it's going to work best for you if you look at how can I succeed in the world um, whilst being a vehicle for change. Because I think at that point, I felt, you know, because I was involved with a campaign movement, that maybe you had to be outside the mainstream or else you weren't pure enough to be Mm. the change that you want to see in the world. And I absolutely understand why you end up there as as a young person you feel powerless. You know, those were the, the days of the Cold War. We felt we were on a nuclear hair trigger, sometimes removing your consent from a policy you know, whose stated intent is first use of weapons of mass destruction may be the only thing you feel is available to you because you feel powerless. Protest movements often are a, you know expression of, of a feeling of powerlessness. But what I learned through Business in the Community, which was an organisation that worked with a lot of the top chief executives through the Prince of Wales's office and all these sorts of things, is that actually, you know, you will find allies wherever you go and look mm. to where the, the hands are that are on the levers of change 
and make yourself useful to them, make yourself understood by them, you will achieve change a lot quicker and, and, and you know, a lot more productively and, and a lot more easily than you might think. You don't have to be outside the system sometimes, especially not if it's the system that needs to change. So, you know, people will have different views about that. But certainly I think when, when I was there, I think the, the mistakes that I made were ones that came from you know, alienation from mainstream society. And understanding now what I do, I think I'd say, well, get started right early on in understanding where the agendas are really being made and shaped because I probably lost 10 years that could have been used productively to greater impact if maybe I'd understood that. I'd also tell myself a few other things, like get your bloody hair cut and shake <laughs> yourself out. <laughs> but, you know. We all of us would have things in that conversation that we wouldn't be prepared to talk about on a podcast. I dare say. So that's what a youth is for, I think. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that that girl that that smiled at you, she does actually like you. Ask her out. Those sorts of things. We don't want to hear about those. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been it's it's been really really enjoyable. Um, you know, enlightening for me, and I'm sure it's you know for anyone listening as well. There's there's been a lot of stuff in there. You're very welcome, and uh, it's been a, a real pleasure and a privilege. I mean, I'm a great fan of the podcast, great fan of the work that you're doing here. Always fascinated to hear the different stories and views of the people that you've been speaking to. They've been great interviews, so it's been my privilege to to join that list of, of very very interesting and preeminent people that's, that's very kind thank you thank you for saying so um i will put all of your all of the links to your to your blogs and uh, podcast in the in the um show notes and i sort of encourage anybody listening to go and go and have a good look at them uh, very very interesting stuff in there so uh yeah anybody anyone listening thank you very much for your time and man and thank you very much for being on the podcast today thanks